This is Monday Morning QB, May 16th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, what we know about the racist murders in Buffalo and the broad threat of white supremacy. Plus, how would overturning Roe v. Wade impact the American economy? And what will conservative judicial activists do next? All that and more. Stay with us. On Saturday, a white gunman shot and killed 10 people at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. The Topps Friendly Market, where the shooting took place, is located in the heart of Buffalo's black community, and 11 of the 13 people shot were black. 18-year-old Peyton Gendrund was arrested on the scene and charged with first-degree murder, and the FBI is investigating the shooting as a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Authorities say they are examining a 180-page document they suspect Gendron posted online to the anonymous message board 4chan before carrying out the attack. The pages repeat a series of white supremacist ideologies, including a racist conspiracy theory known as the Great Replacement, in an attempt to justify his plan to target and murder African Americans. To bring context to the story, we turn to Susan Cork. She is director of the Intelligence Project for the Southern Poverty Law Center. SPLC is the premier U.S. organization monitoring the activities of domestic hate groups and other extremists. We asked Susan Cork how Gendron's apparent commitment to white supremacist ideology mimics what she and her colleagues are seeing across the country. Yes, um, it certainly does seem to be uh, hate and racist motivated killing. But I'd say, you know, after four years of Trump, one of the main trends is that hate and extremism are no longer fringe. Um, The great replacement theory, which motivated the shooter um, and the alleged murders, is a core myth of groups who share white supremacist and white nationalist ideology. And another key trend is that um, amongst the authoritarian far-right part of the Republican Party, there's a real embrace of violence as a legitimate strategy. In particular, if you look at how, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, after killing two people, um, he became a hero of the Republican Party. Um, We see that the white replacement theory that motivated the alleged shooter has become in the water of the Republican Party. The fear of changes to the social status quo in which white people hold a privileged place uh, has helped fuel the mainstreaming of this great replacement It's a conspiracy in which white people are being systematically replaced by non-white immigrants at the hands of leftists, Democrats, multiculturalists, Jewish people, and others. Um, So that's really been core to the white nationalist movement, and it has inspired many of the terror attacks that we've seen in recent years in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Christchurch, New Zealand, El Paso, Texas, specifically the Great Replacement Theory motivated all of those attacks and the alleged shooter sought to emulate them like that was a deliberate part of his plan was to emulate those shooters and you know took some of the same language out of the the shooter from in Christchurch New Zealand the shooter in Buffalo used some of that very same language and here Susan Cork makes an important point this is not just 
you know, terrorists using this. It's in the American living room every night with Tucker Carlson. And that goes back to the issue of mainstreaming. Back in March, the Southern Poverty Law Center, in its annual report, found that even as the number of active hate and anti-government extremist groups continued to decline in 2021 from historic highs in previous years, the extremist ideas that mobilize them now operate more openly in the political mainstream. Yes, that's one of the sort of the main and most worrisome trends that we've seen is that this the the mainstreaming of these white supremacist ideas and this great replacement theory is one of the core mobilizing beliefs that has become mainstreamed. And how and where is that happening? That brings us back to Tucker Carlson, though it hardly stops there. A lot of the moral responsibility I would put squarely on his shoulders. You know, he has the most viewed cable news program in the country. Night after night, millions of Americans are hearing him normalize and promote the great replacement theory. And then we hear being echoed by elected officials such as Matt Gates of Florida. So the theory that is leading to terror attacks is openly being used on Fox for profit to motivate white people to take action against non-whites. As further evidence of how replacement theory has gained ground in the far right, we look back to the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Hundreds of white nationalists rallied at the University of Virginia, protesting against plans to remove a statue of a Confederate general. And this is what they chanted. You will not replace us! 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 This was, of course, the rally where Heather Heyer was killed by 20-year-old James Alex Fields after the avowed white supremacist plowed his car into a group of counter-protesters. So now the conversation has to turn to what can be done so this heinous violence doesn't keep happening. As it should, the massacre in Buffalo is renewing the call for gun control, This is Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown speaking yesterday on NBC's Meet the Press. Uh, It seems like there are those that believe uh, owning a gun is more precious uh, than the sanctity of human life. Uh, So I think people all across this country have to rise up. Uh, They have to speak more loudly and more clearly that there must be gun control in this country. This is a uniquely American phenomenon. These mass shootings don't happen in other countries across the world. We have to ask ourselves, and more than ask ourselves, we have to take action uh, to stop it, uh, to stop it after this Buffalo, New York incident to make sure that other communities, that other families don't go through this again. In addition to gun control, this shooting is also putting a focus on social media and the role it may have played in Saturday's massacre. This is New York Governor Kathy Hochul speaking with Face the Nation on CBS yesterday, describing one of the ways her administration is responding to what happened. 
Well, we are taking proactive measures to make sure that we're monitoring all social media platforms because this, this information was out there. This was on a manifesto that was written a while back, and so we're very concerned about what other information is perpetrated out there on social media platforms and are out there being disseminated globally. So this information from yesterday's attack is already out there. It was live streamed. The, uh, the intent of this individual was telegraphed in advance. So I'm calling on social media platforms to be making sure that they're doing a better job monitoring the hate speech that's out there, especially when it's directed against populations and comes on the guise of white supremacy terrorism, which is exactly what happened here in Buffalo. Susan Cork of the Southern Poverty Law Center agrees that the role of social media in inspiring hate and extremist violence cannot be overlooked. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center recently launched a new page on their website called TechWatch, where Susan Cork says they are exposing the culpability of technology companies in amplifying and enriching hate and extremist actors. And to make the point about why this is necessary, here Susan Cork describes what they have found out about the suspected gunman, Peyton Gendron. Um, sure. So I, I can say we have been, since the shooting, we have been tracking what the person was up to online, what the shooter was up to online. And he had a substantial online history in niche, toxic online communities. Um, and it, it was clear that he spent a lot of time online. He was fluent in racist and violent language. And, you know, these are places that celebrate and encourage other mass shootings. And he himself said he was radicalized through participation in these online forums. And there were plenty of red flags online. He was planning for two weeks details of the attack on you know, mainstream fora too, like Reddit and Discord. Um, so there are plenty of red flags. So what I would say is we, we are very focused on the need for more accountability from technology companies. No doubt any effort to bring more accountability to social media will run up against the argument that such efforts will violate the First Amendment. Susan Cork explains why that argument doesn't hold up. SPLC is a human rights organization, so we are mindful of the First Amendment. But the problem is technology companies are not even enforcing their own terms of service or their own and their own policies to ensure that social media platforms, payment service providers, and other Internet-based services do not provide forms where hateful activities and extremism can grow and lead to domestic terrorism. So it will require increased spending on and attention to content moderation to rapidly and effectively address content that violates terms of service and be more transparent and report on and address the reasons and the numbers and the why content is taken down. So, you know, they're, they're not even kind of following their own rules because they're making a profit off of it. Um, SCLC has focused a lot on, on Twitter and, you know, how Twitter has openly, you know, been promoting some of these far-right actors who you know, are putting out a lot of this hateful stuff. So it's, it's not even that they're neutral and, my, you know, the argument that they're for the First Amendment, they're, they are actively enabling, allowing, and enriching white supremacists to be doing this stuff on their platforms. They're profiting off of it. It's not kind of a benign, neutral stance that they would like to have us believe. Of course, uh, the work to be done is going to have to go further than social media beyond that approach. 
where can we do something now so something like this doesn't happen again? This is a clear warning that democracy in the United States is under attack. It's a clear sign that violence and intimidation are increasingly being seen on the right as legitimate political tools. So number one, we need a Republican Party that is not openly endorsing white supremacist theories and fetishizing violence as politically legitimate. They know that it's motivating mass murder and yet they continue with it. The far right media ecosystem, as I already talked about, also shares moral responsibility on this. So one recommendation, words matter. We need leaders speaking out against hate consistently and using their public platforms to condemn hate and racism. Uh, Number two, this is an area where uh, my team at SPLC has really been focused on is we need to be preventing these tragedies from happening in the first place. We need to be educating and equipping communities with the tools and resources they need to recognize common warning signs that a young person has encountered extremist ideas, whether offline, online, or both, and help communities build resilience against white supremacy and extremism. So we are working with Peril Laboratory at American University to develop inoculation tools to help prevent radicalization. And there's more that the government can do to support that too. Federal agencies such as Department of Justice, Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services need to provide more resources for programs and processes for early intervention because we need to build up our ability to push back and resist white supremacy and the violence that it inspires. That was Susan Cork, director of the Intelligence Project for the Southern Poverty Law Center. You can read their report, Year in Hate and Extremism 2021, at splcenter.org. And before we end this story, we want to return to the words of Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown, who spoke yesterday to ABC News about how his community is responding to Saturday's tragedy. Well, Buffalo is a loving community. Uh, We are known as the city of good neighbors nationally and internationally. This is a strong community. People are already rallying together, wrapping their arms around the families of the victims. uh, And we are sending a very strong message uh, that this kind of hate uh, cannot be tolerated. Uh, it is not who we are as a city. Uh, it is not who we are as a nation. And we need to do more collectively as a nation uh, to send a message that this kind of hate will not be tolerated anywhere. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. To continue the conversation about far-right violence and its impact on the country, we turn to the Monday Morning QB archives. In January this year, in one of his last interviews he broadcasts on our air, News Director Eskia Mohammed talked with religious leader and activist Reverend Liz Theo Harris about the perils of white Christian nationalism. Here's how Eskia introduced that interview. The very seam of the United States is being torn apart by white Christian nationalism. 
a prominent Christian theologian warned in an op-ed article last week. The Reverend Liz Theo Harris is co-chair of Repairs of the Breach, the Poor People's Campaign. Even in the face of a surge of militant white nationalism, she remains committed to nonviolent direct action and is optimistic about the eventual outcome in the modern struggle for justice, despite conditions similar to those which preceded the bloody Civil War. I do think that there are parallels between uh, the time of the Civil War, um, what was happening politically, economically, theologically, and what's happening today, um, even with the forces of, you know, Christian nationalism um, being different than they were then, and 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 you know the whole economic and political system being shifted. Um, I think that Christian nationalists would would like uh, violence and are willing to, as we saw on January sixth um, uh, and other times in communities across the country to incite violence. Um, I don't know if it's going to take, uh, you know, I'm one that believes as, as I think, you know, in nonviolent struggle, um, and nonviolent direct action. And, um, I, I don't know that it is going to take a, a violent bloody, you know, war. Um, but, uh, there surely is, uh, a lot of violence, including, um, especially on the part of, of these Christian nationalists. In your article, you warned that it might almost certainly legislatively be too late. That's right. I mean, the attack that we're seeing on voting rights um, and on the democracy, uh, it, you know, it is unseen since the attack on on the rights that were won after the Civil War in Reconstruction. Um, and and I think we should actually be, you know, making that connection a lot more than than, than only the, um, a more recent uh, kind of attack. And, you know, what we're going to see in the midterms and in the next presidential election, when you, when you look at the kind of redistricting that's happening, um, you know, yesterday as President Biden was in Georgia talking about voting rights, you know, they... In North Carolina, they were pushing forward a, uh, you know, a, a redistricting map and plan that you know is going to disenfranchise you know, so many voters and and make it virtually impossible for candidates that are talking about living wages and healthcare and and the issues that impact um, so many people, um, uh, poor people, black people, brown people, um, to actually ever get elected. And so, uh, you know, and when we look at you know the rising. Uh, temperature of the water and um, and climate change. When we look at uh, you know all kinds of issues, I mean, on some level, it it it's almost too late. Um, uh, but you know, again, I come from a great tradition of people that have uh, have seen that the the arc of history bends, um, and and there's lots of injustice, but that it does bend indeed towards justice. And so, I don't believe that it's too late. Um, but I do believe that the inaction um, in Congress and in the White House has led us to, to voting right infringements and a, a attack on the democracy that is virtually unseen and, and will take, you know, a generation to, to, to come back from if, if, if we're able to organize even powerfully that way. You speak about a bottom-up campaign organizing. Wouldn't the 
inevitable response of the bottom up be voting? Can't the campaign to protect voting be protected by voting itself? Or, or is voting just a lost cause? So I do not believe that voting is a lost cause. And I think what we've seen in our studies that we've put together in the Four People's Campaign at Kairos and Repairs of the Breach um, shows that, you know, one third of the U.S. electorate right now is poor and low income. Um, and so, and um, when we look at the 2020 elections, I mean, we had record turnout amongst poor, poor and low income voters actually a, a multiracial kind of democratic effort coming together for white and for Latino and for uh, black and, and native voters, you know, turning out in really big ways and, and, and being the deciding factor, um, you know, in a lot of battleground areas and states. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our work is going to be about that registering and empowering and engaging and educating and mobilizing folks, um, especially this kind of block of, of poor and low income um, voters uh, who really have the power to, to tip the scale, to shift the entire political landscape. Um, and, and we need at the same time as we're going to do this grassroots, grassroots ground up organizing, we need our politicians and, and candidates to actually speak to and put forward solutions to the issues and the agenda that, that poor and low income people are, are raising because Again, what we saw in 2020 was that folks turned out uh, because folks were talking about, you know, politicians were talking about, you know, voting rights and systemic racism and, and living wages and um, addressing the climate and, and COVID relief. And yet we have seen too little happen. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the fact that we have not had a, a raise in, in minimum wage in 12 years, uh, you know, it, it means people are out of touch. Our politicians are out of touch. And so what we, what we're going to need is the ground up approach, but then we're also going to have to have and, and force um, our politicians to actually then come forward with the kinds of plans and legislation and programs that poor and low income people need. And I guess what I'm yearning for is, is to, to hear the spirited call for that one third to just, storm the polls and storm whatever they can do the way we respond to American Idol, for example, just demonstrate we want freedom. That's right. That's right. And I, and I think, you know, what we are doing in the poor people's campaign um, with a, a mass poor people and low wage workers assembly and moral March on Washington. And, but then the, the second part of that, that's going to be on June 18th of, of 2022. But then the second part of that is an, an, a moral march to the polls, right, in the midterms and in the, the next presidential elections. And because, you know, what we've talked about is that this one-third of the, the electorate um, being really almost a sleeping giant, um, but that, that sleeping giant is waking up and, and has the power, um, if we storm the polls, as you're saying, you know, nonviolently and, and actually come together and, and put forward, um, you know, votes votes for people that are going to actually improve people's lives um, and then hold our politicians to it, that that's, you know, how we're going to see really fundamental social transformation and change. And, 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 and we're hearing it. We're hearing it all over that people are prepared um, to turn out um, uh, if, if we're able to organize folks and if we're able to actually make 
the power structures, um, you know, put forward solutions to the problems that people are seeing right now. When you say if we can motivate the people to come out, I, I remember a saying that I heard often, half the eligible don't register, half the registered don't vote. And it is a, a question of just motivating people to really respond in their best interest at the polls. Yeah, I think what we saw in 2020, though, was record numbers, and especially amongst poor and low-income people. In a bunch of battleground states, the, the folks that, that voted, that not just registered to vote, not just were eligible to vote, but who voted in the 2020 election were poor, low-income people, 40%, right? I mean, that's, that's a huge, huge number, huge percentage, um, and those folks are out there voting. Um, and so I think it is true that, that there's many things that get in the way of poor and low-income people voting. Uh, sometimes it's voter suppression and also the voter suppression of, of the lack of transportation and, and um, being able to get off work uh, and not having the time to wait in these long lines and, and all of that. Um, but, but and also kind of uh, people thinking that they don't have the power to, to impact, um, especially since politicians are often not talking about the issues that are of most concern to people. Um, but what, what we've also seen is that that can be overcome and is being overcome and that folks, you know, in 2020, and, and this can keep on happening. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we in the Poor People's Campaign, you know, reached out to more than 2 million poor and low-income, what they call low-propensity voters in the, in the 2020 elections. Um, and that means folks that, that hadn't voted um, in a couple of elections. You know, some folks, you know, hadn't voted in two presidential elections. But we reached out to, to 2 million, more than 2 million of those in, in about 15 battleground states. Um, where, uh, and, and what we found was that, that folks voted. Um, when we reached out to them, when we talked about an agenda, that was about living wages and healthcare and addressing climate issues and systemic racism that people, um, you know, statistically um, we were able to impact uh, uh, people's uh, participation in the election. And, and so we know it works and, and we plan to keep on doing it. We know others are planning to keep on doing it um, and, and really, you know, be able to, to make an impact. Reverend Liz Theo Harris, thank you for your insight. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thousands upon thousands of people took to the streets this weekend to express their disgust over the expected Supreme Court decision destroying the Roe v. Wade abortion access ruling. Some of the disgust focused on how Justice Samuel Alito's leaked draft could undermine court precedent beyond abortion. Key court decisions, including Obergefell v. Hodges, which protects same-sex marriage, and Griswold v. Connecticut, which protects access to contraceptives, could be on the chopping block. Earlier this month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott even said he would challenge a 1982 ruling requiring public schools to accept undocumented children into classrooms. To learn more about the Roe ruling and whether overturning Roe could threaten other rights, 
We turn to Chinyure Aza, senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Aza explains that the right to abortion found in Roe was based on what's called penumbral rights, a right, in this case to privacy, that is not explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution, but can be inferred from the text. So um, that's a way of saying that the right to privacy, while not made explicit on the face of the Constitution, could be inferred from things such as the First Amendment and the rights um, to self-expression it provided, um, from things like the 14th Amendment and the right to liberty it protected, as well as the rights that are reserved for the people by way of the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution. So the role, in essence, adopted the analysis of Griswold and successor cases and said, you know, there is a right to privacy and that right to privacy surely is is broad or capacious enough to reach um, the decision about whether a person is able to terminate their pregnancy. Sure. And the specific case being heard by the court right now, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, revolves around a specific Mississippi ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And that ban seems to clearly violate the standard of fetal viability found in the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts asked questions during oral arguments that made it appear as if he wanted to try to uphold the Mississippi law without striking down Roe. And I'm curious, is, is threading this needle even legally possible, given the contradictions between Roe and the Mississippi law? I think that Justice Roberts is an institutionalist. He is concerned about the perception of the courts, whether the court is viewed as an institution that has um, integrity and neutrality or whether it's viewed as a political body. And I think that has in the past served as a helpful restraint on the types of decisions he's willing to render as chief justice. I think his questions during the oral argument were a reflection of his attempt to try to find some basis to narrow a decision that might be rendered in the Dobbs case. That said, I, I think that um, any decision by the court that upholds the Mississippi law would be an implicit invalidation of Roe and its successor case, KCV Planned Parenthood. And that's because both of those cases hinged on a viability analysis. And there's been no evidence proffered in the Dobbs case that the viability metric has now been moved up to 15 weeks. So absent, you know, a medical or scientific reason to reconsider whether, for instance, um, 15-week abortions implicate um, viability, you know, that central holding of both Roe and Casey, that the state's ability to regulate the, the right to abortion does not commence until there's fetal viability, you know, that that has and, and, and must be undermined by any decision that upholds upholds the Mississippi law. That makes sense. Speaking of other sort of underminings of, of existing precedent, I mean, Alito's draft opinion says of the right to abortion that, quote, no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, end quote. Should we interpret this statement as saying that the right to privacy as found in the Constitution, as you described earlier, as a whole is implicit, or just the right to abortion being implicit? I think that we should interpret Alito's draft opinion 
as as being a full frontal attack not only on the the privacy line of cases but frankly on the entire method of constitutional interpretation that has been adopted by the Supreme Court since its abhorrent decision in Bowers v. Hardwick. In essence, Alito is saying that on the on one hand, the only rights that really um, should be afforded protection by courts are constitutional rights that appear on the face of the document that are not um, implicit or that are not the subject of interp- interpretation. Um, he's saying elsewhere that the court's precedents, its own precedents, are not entitled to deference and should not be subject to the doctrine of stare decisis, which for many years, centuries even, has um, been a doctrine that has, in essence, upheld judicial precedents issued by the court from, from overruling unless there's, you know, a very compelling justification. The Alito opinion more or less dispenses with that doctrine and says, in fact, we should always be re-examining our constitutional decisions. We should always be making sure that they are rooted in the text of the constitution and that we are not intruding into, in essence, political debates. And so um, I think by that line of analysis, we really have to understand that even the court's equal protection cases might be in doubt, even cases like Obergefell the Hodges, which relied on not just a privacy analysis as um, the Roe case did, but also an equal protection analysis about, you know, whether marriage to the extent it's made available to opposite sex couples can be banned or prescribed when, when it applies to same, same gender couples. I take some comfort in the fact that Roe is um, ultimately a privacy case without um, a strong equal protection analysis, because I think that means that cases like Obergefell that have both a privacy and an equal protection analysis have one remaining leg to stand on. But at the same time, Alito's statement that stare decisis in essence should not apply to any constitutional decisions that are not in the form of his decision, one that is purely originalist and, and, and purely textualist, seeking to understand you know, what the framers understood or you know, via historical analysis, how um, concepts in the Constitution should have been construed as at the time of adoption. I, again, I, I can't, I can't overstate the threat that Alito's opinion opposes to constitutional democracy as we understand it. To take a step back here, you know, of course, many conservatives have celebrated this draft decision as a long time coming, right? Fifty years in the making. In addition, three of the four youngest Supreme Court justices were appointed by Trump. And so it seems like this conservative majority on SCOTUS is likely to remain for many years, if not many generations. Given this, can we anticipate what the next step in conservative or GOP legal strategy would be, assuming that Roe is struck down in full? Well, um, again, I think um, as Governor Abbott has already previewed, I think conservatives will begin teeing up new cases um, for the court to decide. I think the court has, by way of its draft decision in Dobbs, announced it no longer plans to have hold fidelity to its precedents. And so I fully expect that through um, state legislation and um, other other you know um, avenues, there will be frontal attacks on 
the types of rights that we consider to be constitutionally protected at this time, whether that's the right to contraception, whether that's states um, that continue to have sodomy laws um, on the books, beginning to enforce them, you know, whether it's banning undocumented children from school. I do think that we are going to see the the courts become a hotbed of of conservative judicial activism and experimentation. I do want to add, you know, one final observation, which is it's really not clear that a progressive member of the court or court personnel is the source of this leak. If anything, because the Dobbs draft that, you know, we've all been able to review is such an abnormality, such an extreme articulation of constitutional interpretation that, again, has really found no footing in the Supreme Court's precedents of the past 35 years, you know, since Bowers v. Hardwick. The view that I I actually hold, and I think that many others do, is that uh, Alito or his chambers became concerned that his opinion was not going to be adopted as written. And if anything, you know, the leak came from someone who was concerned that Alito's quote-unquote draft majority opinion might actually be relegated to a concurrence and that, in essence, um, an adult would take over and and write an opinion that um, was more narrow in the manner that um, Chief Justice Roberts' questions might have suggested. So, you know, I will acknowledge it's it's just a, a, a speculation at this point, but there really is strong speculation that this opinion was leaked to try to create um, more pressure internally on the court to really hold fast to Alito's views because once it overcame the embarrassment of this opinion being leaked, it would have to confront the embarrassment of, you know, in approximately six weeks, releasing an opinion that looked nothing like this and, you know, and and having to assess which one would cause more embarrassment or more harm to the Supreme Court as an institution. And so um, I think that's worth mentioning here. That's Chinure Azier, Senior Staff Attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Learn more about the organization by visiting ccrjustice.org. To continue our coverage of the impending Roe decision, we turn to economist Kate Bonn to explain how limitations on abortion and contraceptives access can impact pregnant individuals, their families, and the economy as a whole an array of macroeconomic measures, from the gender wage gap to labor force participation, stand to be shaped by a full overturning of Roe. The financial stability and educational attainment of pregnant individuals could also be fundamentally threatened. Kate Bonn, who is Chief Economist and Director of Labor Market Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, co-authored a research review last fall that detailed these possible consequences. Bond begins by explaining how women's economic participation is directly connected with their ability to make reproductive decisions for themselves. I mean, it's probably pretty intuitive to families with children um, how much having children um, in your home and in your family shapes your sort of subsequent decisions about how you engage in the economy. Um, and so we, we, you know, we can look at this as economists empirically by looking at what has happened when there's been massive shifts in the ability of people to decide um, when and whether to have families. And so some of the um, you know biggest field of research on this is contraceptive access. Um, and so contraceptives, uh, the birth control pill was not widely available to women 
until the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, and then it was uh, became federally available to women um, in the early 1970s. And what we saw here was um, it's not even so much about like whether women have children, but the timing of children and the ability to control that timing has a clear impact on women um, deciding to invest in education, particularly higher education. Um, which opened up a wider variety of occupations. And when there's a wider variety of occupations, we also saw higher labor force participation rates, particularly in those years of, you know, maybe 20 to 40, um, which are also their childbearing years. And then, you know, that just has a spiller effect too, that if there's higher labor force participation, there's a wider variety of occupations available to women um, that they also have higher earnings. Sure. I mean, your research cites some Guttmacher research that says roughly one in four women in the U.S. have an abortion by age 45, and nearly one in 20 have unintended pregnancies. You know, given this clear impact of access to contraceptions and abortion that you just described, is it possible to gauge how quickly and by how much women's labor force participation would drop if Roe is overturned? Um. One thing I, I like, I don't think we're going to know necessarily. Um, my concern with the overturn of Roe is not so much women dropping out of the labor force. I think at this point in economic history, um, women of all races have a pretty strong attachment to the labor force, but it's constra- going to constrain how they engage in the labor force. Um, and so women may be going into part-time jobs, um, lower paid jobs that could be easier to merge with care responsibilities in their families. Um, maybe different occupations because they couldn't get an advanced degree. And so that is more my concern is the ways in which Roe shapes the type of work women go into and the level of work women go into versus working in the first place. Putting that aside, I do know that in the United States, um, compared to our peer economies in the OECD, has had declining female labor force participation since the year 2000, which is unique for the U.S. compared to our peer economies. And economists have hypothesized part of the reason that the U.S. has a hard time engaging women in the labor force the same way other advanced economies do is precisely because we don't have the social infrastructure that makes it a little bit easier to balance both caregiving needs and someone's personal life with engagement in the economy. And so that is things like access to paid leave, access to paid sick time, um, access to accessible childcare, predictable scheduling, all these types of factors really limit the ability of people, particularly women, um, who have a disproportionate care responsibility to engage in the economy. Relatedly, you cite research showing that the legalization of abortion is correlated with significant decreases in teen pregnancies and increases in education rates for Black women in particular, while Mm -hmm. similar benefits to white women were more modest. What explains this disproportionate benefit for Black women? And would overturning Roe then disproportionately harm Black women? Yeah, research has found that Black women in states with trap laws during their young adulthood have worse education and economic outcomes in the future compared to white women in those same states. And I think what this really demonstrates is precisely that interrelated uh, linkage between bodily autonomy, family planning, and economic opportunity. And so if you're already in an economically precarious situation, um, so you maybe already have fewer job options, you already have less family wealth, which we know that there's huge wealth inequality by race in this country, having an unexpected child or having an unexpected pregnancy is much more likely to have these negative economic consequences because you don't have that stability to manage economic shocks. 
And I think we would see that particularly happening with any racial or ethnic group who already is facing much more economic precarity for a variety of reasons. I'm also really worried about um, abortion accessibility for groups of women like Latino women. Research shows that Latino women are particularly sensitive to how accessible abortion services are. Um, So it's not about just the legal right to go to a clinic, but whether you can afford the care. So research has found that in the states where there is Medicaid funding for abortion, um, it has a much stronger impact on Latino women. Um, So it's just showing that the fact that like it's, you can't just say a woman in a state with more conservative access or just outright bans, women in states with outright bans and abortion can just travel to states with more liberal access to abortion, because that clearly is not sufficient for women who don't have the wealth or ability to travel to get abortion care services. Turning to the gender wage gap, which is obviously a perennial issue in political discourse, uh, your review links to research that finds that access to contraceptives led to reductions in the gender wage gap because women changed their, quote, human capital investments. And, And this research that you cited says that access to contraceptives accounted for 10 to 30% of the gender wage gap convergence in the last two decades Mm -hmm. of the 20th century. And so if if contraceptives are ultimately put on the chopping block by the Supreme Court, should we anticipate a a re-widening of the wage gap? And if so, by how much? We could see some of that. Um, I'm not in the business of making specific uh, empirical like guesses. It's just, you know, I'm not comfortable doing that. But I will say, you know, like when we look at the causes of the gender wage gap, economists do this by looking at, you know, people's so-called human capital, which is to say, like, what are the characteristics of an individual that we expect to be associated with their pay levels? Um, Historically, part of the reason women had much lower pay than men was because women had um, lower rates of labor force participation. So they had fewer years of work experience. As women have caught up um, and gotten many more years of work experience, now, occupational segregation explains almost half of the gender wage gap, which is to say that women are crowded into particular jobs um, that tend to be female-dominated jobs that tend to pay a lot less. Uh, and so we know that that is sort of the current state of the gender wage gap. Um, and so you know, that research I had done that looked at trap laws, and I think we could say that this is also likely about access to contraception, is that when we limit women's ability to go into different occupations, that is going to exacerbate these trends of occupational segregation, which is the primary determinant of the gender wage gap. Um, We want women to be able to change occupations, go into occupations that not only match their interests, but also where they can be most productive, um, and also try to desegregate our occupational structure in this country. And so the fact that it seems so clear from the economic evidence that family planning is such a big factor in women's occupational choices, limiting that, I think, would have this huge negative impact on occupational segregation, which then subsequently could either maintain or potentially exacerbate the gender wage gap. Sure, that makes sense. Lastly, you know, we've obviously been talking about these economic issues, both big picture and personal, that will result from an overturning of Roe. But in in my experience, it's almost always the case that economic issues spill over into the, you know, into social and cultural realms of life. Can you talk a little bit about what reduced financial security and reduced job stability will mean for women's participation in public life beyond the workplace? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, civic and political participation, cultural work, that, that sort of stuff. Um, and I also have another point that I'll make first before I answer your question. Sure. Um, 
because I think this relates to sort of like more like the cultural factors or how economics is like an input to sort of cultural factors is that um, also women's financial independence and women's ability to work and support themselves is really critical for their interpersonal relationships as well. Um, and so we know from research um, in feminist economics on how bargaining happens in households. So between two partners of a household, how they decide, um, you know, things like where they want to live, how they want to invest in their children. Um, these types of choices take place between two people. And it is really critical to having sort of positive, fair and equitable outcomes in households that the partners in a household have financial independence. And that is like one of my concerns with taking away women's ability to invest in their own careers, taking away women's ability to decide um, their own reproduction choices is that that also impacts their interpersonal relationships. It disempowers them in their homes as well. Um, and I think that is really concerning to think about. Um, so it is one cultural thing that I could see happening. That's like a, a link between economics and culture. I think we also know women tend to be very active in their communities and in civic life. Um, and this is not only a social benefit, it is also an economic benefit. So the economist Nina Banks looks precisely at how, for example, Black women do a lot of unpaid community work of maintaining the well-being um, in their communities, offsetting economic inequality in their communities, and constraining the ability of women to be participants in their communities and improve their communities is really a way that it would be a loss for all of us if we women are less able to do that type of work, um, which has a real value. I mean, it's not just a cultural value or a social value, it also has an economic value to give people the ability to participate in community life and civic life. That's Kate Bonn, Chief Economist and Director of Labor Market Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Learn more by visiting equitablegrowth.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. Thousands of protesters gathered in Washington and at hundreds of events across the country on Saturday to rally for abortion rights. The Bands Off Our Bodies rallies came in response to a leaked draft opinion that suggests Supreme Court justices will soon vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that affirmed the right to abortion access. Among those who spoke on stage during the rally in Washington, D.C., was Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, who shared her own harrowing experience getting an abortion as a teen in Mexico. And on today's show, she gets the last word. Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Now, we all know that this is a crisis moment. The radical Supreme Court justices and right-wing extremists are making it clear that they won't stop until a nationwide ban is enacted. But we are here to say loudly and clearly, keep these bans off our body. Keep them off. Our right to make our own decisions about our bodies is in danger of being taken away. So say it again, keep these bands off our bodies. Like many of you, I'm scared, yes. I'm upset, yes. I'm angry, yes. We fought these battles 50 years ago. 
50 years ago. But let me tell you, we're moving forward because we understand this radical right and we must fight them again. But fight we will, right? Fight we will. Because of you, the House of Representatives passed our woman warrior, Congresswoman Judy Chu's bill to enshrine abortion into federal law because of you. And yes, unfortunately, the radical Senate Republicans plus one who say they care about personal liberties seem to not care at all about taking away our personal liberties, our personal decisions over our bodies. And they want to take away for the first time a constitutional right, first time. But as you've heard over and over again, they won't stop here. If they come for us today, they're coming for you tomorrow. So don't think these bans aren't an attempt to further erode our personal liberties and our democracy. So fight we must to keep these bands off our bodies. Fight we must. Now you all know I am one of the one in four women who have had an abortion. This is, this is very also personal for me as I know it's personal for many of you. But it was my choice, it was my body. It was my body, it's my choice. That's what it was. That's what it was. I know firsthand what being denied access to legal abortion looks like. When I was a teen teenager, I got an abortion. Fortunately, my loving late mother was there to support me and her friend, my mother, I was 15, almost 16, her friend in El Paso, Texas, recommended a daughter in Juarez, Mexico, where I could get an abortion, where it was illegal also. I was so afraid, so afraid. I flew from California to El Paso, my first time on an airplane. I did not know what to expect other than this decision could put my life in jeopardy. That's all I knew. So I'm here to tell you, I have experienced the fear, the stigma, and despair of being denied the care that you need. I know what it's like to worry about your medical decision becoming criminalized. I know that fear. I know what it's like to see your future hang on the decisions of politicians and judges instead of doctors and whom you trust. I know that. Shame on them. 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 That was Congresswoman Barbara Lee speaking at the Bands Off Our Bodies rally on Saturday. And that's our show for today. 
Thanks to our engineer, Mike Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia. And thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show, WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.